And I think just being open to new approaches with people and patients will make a difference. Everybody is different. We know this, people eat different foods. So really the dietary advice that we give should be reflective of people's preferences and choices and other medical conditions. And I think that's where we've perhaps gone a little bit wrong with cardiovascular disease. We've been a bit too rigid in our approach. And if we follow example from diabetes now, we've got lots of different approaches to manage diabetes. Welcome to the Dietetics Digest podcast, a podcast that helps you understand more about the different areas of dietetics and nutrition and what others are doing within them. We do this by talking to inspiring and influential individuals that are advancing practice in some way, shape and form. Our mission is to create a resource that helps dietitians to build, grow and share ideas with each other to help advance their practice and the practice of others. I am your host, Aaron Boyson. It's really exciting. Really exciting. Yeah. <laughs> so, <clears throat> first of all, I'd like to start off with just a little quick introduction about who you are and sort of what you what your sort of role looks like. Okay, so um, do you want name as well, that kind of stuff. Yeah, name okay. everything. Um, so, my name is Tom. I'm a senior lecturer in nutrition and dietetics at the University of Chester, and I lead the undergraduate degree in nutrition and dietetics. Uh, so, I'm the program leader for that particular degree. My areas of kind of interest really stem back to, I think, my sort of doctorate, which was looking at sort of nutrition in relation to cardiovascular health, um, in particular, looking at how the food that's consumed, so fats and, and sugars in particular, how that affects the developing heart. And then I've carried that kind of forward into looking at more specifically um, the effect of nutrition in secondary prevention of heart attacks. So really that cardiac rehab and heart failure setting. And what led you up to that? That PhD, what actually le- led you up to it? Because I always find that a bit interesting how dietitians get mm. there because it's not something that a lot... Well, yeah. We want we want more dietitians <laughs> to do it. I know that a lot of uh, people who have experienced it and been through that, um, obviously it's uh, difficult and hard, but they do think it's a value to dietitians themselves and also the profession. But how did you get to that point? What was your roadmap? Did you just go straight there or did you... No, I think I went kind of round every route possible really to get to it. I had no idea about dietetics when I was doing my A-levels. I had no idea about dietetics when I was doing my degree. And I only really heard about dietetics probably in the second year of my PhD. And so I kind of, I, I, when I was doing my A-levels today, biology, chemistry, and geography, and AS level art and design, because I like painting and regrettably have let that slide, but I quite enjoy it. And I knew I really wanted to get into sort of human sciences. So I did human biology at the University of Hull. And it was in my final year with my dissertation project that I really kind of got the sort of nutrition bug, so to speak. And I was looking at the effect of sugar. It was kind of called like a high fat diet on the heart. And this was a really kind of quite novel um, project. It involved, it was a, a rodent model. And I thought this was amazing to see the effects of this diet pattern on how the heart responds to high blood pressure. And my dissertation supervisor asked me at the time, what are your thoughts afterwards, after my degree? And like a lot of people, I kind of thought, well, I don't really know. And she said, are you interested in doing a PhD? And I had literally nothing else at the time lined up. And I thought, well, yeah, why not? Uh, And that kind of fell into that situation. I thought three years, fantastic, bit of income and the title of doctor at the end. And as I was going through my PhD, it was, I think, probably towards the end of my second year where I started to realize that the thing that I felt was missing from what I was doing was the 
uh, applicability in the actual using the information that I'd kind of created and, and sort of found out. And that's where for me, dietetics became a sort of an obvious career choice where you're sort of looking at the scientific evidence, but then thinking about how you apply that in that sort of real world setting. And for me, that's what I felt my PhD was lacking. Um, I worked on, it was kind of an animal model of heart. Mm -hmm. And the things that came from that to do with Western diets, high in fat, high in sugar, we know from the human trials now that that is kind of a really quite bad diet pattern to follow for Mm -hmm. cardiovascular health. And I I think actually what really motivated me to get into dietetics was the ability to apply that to work with people. And that's really kind of where things went. So I, I kind of found it by accident, really. And a lot of people who maybe listen to this will know they want to be a dietitian from, the, from a very young age. I kind of found it really almost by accident. But here I am today. Okay, so you, so you went, did an undergraduate degree, then did your PhD, and then you... Yeah, undergraduate degree, PhD, and then a postgraduate diploma in uh, nutrition and dietetics. And then from, from there, how did you get your... How did you end up in your current position as a, as a lecturer? So actually, whilst I was doing my PhD, I was doing some um, visiting lecturing at the time. And I think that, that set me up basically perfectly well. And you think, well, there's nothing... You've got lots of other things to do during your, your PhD. But it's important that you take on additional things because it, it all adds to your skill set mm-hmm. and lecturing, teaching, marking assessment. Yeah, it all adds work at the time, but you can say you've done it after you've done it and it really helps you. And I remember doing lectures um, at the University of Chester whilst I was doing my PhD and sort of diabetes and um, cardiovascular health in response to diabetes as well. And that sort of really made me realize that I'm quite interested in the sort of the academic side of, of dietetics um, and the sort of the treat t- uh, the teaching and the sort of the learning aspect. Um, and that was kind of something that helped me move towards my position that I'm in now, which was which is obviously lecturing here on the dietetics program. And just to pivot back a bit a little bit, what made you so interested in cardiovascular disease? It came it's I don't know. I've always really enjoyed the cardiovascular system, learning about it, I think since I did a-level biology. So I had a biology teacher called Mrs. Toes, um, fantastic name for a biology teacher. And she was really kind of a very sort of um, inspirational in terms of the, my learning. And I think it came from those sort of A-level biology sessions. And I don't quite know why. It's just something that I've always found really, really interesting. I think mainly because a lot of conditions that we kind of see uh, in society, there's an obvious cause for in many ways, and certainly with some of the dietetics related things. But from my point of view, I, I find cardiovascular disease really interesting because it's 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 kind of like a sneaky disease. It creeps up on you, mm-hmm. and it's sort of a lifelong exposure to these risk factors. So smoking, lack of physical activity, sedentary behaviour, controversial things like diets high in saturated fat and salt, and these all you know, over a decade contribute to increased cardiovascular risk. And I find that amazing from a sort of a behavior change point of view that we need to try and address some of these issues, but you can't see any of these risk factors. Mm -hmm. They're clinically silent until like many people today, maybe wake up with a bit of pain in their arm or the jaw and that gets worse. And the next thing they know, they're in the cath lab having a stent fitted because they've had a heart attack. And I think understanding that disease process and helping people, A, 
try and make healthy changes to stop them having a heart attack, but also working with people after they had one to kind of stay healthy. I, I, I just find that amazing. And it's that life course approach, which, which really attracts me to cardiovascular health. Um, there's so much scope for uh, sort of public health interventions, which of course is consistent with what the BDA have been saying about dietitians do prevention. Um, th- there's a huge scope for dietitians to get involved in this. And I just think it's something that we've, we sort of know about, but we don't really do a lot on in terms of dietetic practice. And it's almost like it's the important thing that's kind of forgotten. I think not that there are, aren't dietitians no. that do that work, no, but no. I would, I would have to have to agree with you. There isn't always forefront of the learning mm. and teaching of mm. either student dietitians or, or dietitians in practice. Yeah. Why do you, why do you think that is? Cause it is such a, a thing that affects the public. Like everyone knows someone who's had a heart attack yep. or um, had problems with the heart or some sort of cardiovascular disease. Often it interacts with other comorbidities mm. like diabetes yep. and type, type two diabetes in particular. Um, why do you think that we haven't sort of? I'm I'm not sure. I think I think in many ways because, like you say, that it overlaps with other conditions where there's perhaps more of a um, an obvious role for dietetic intervention, like diabetes, for example, where we know obviously the um, advantages in understanding around carbohydrates and weight loss with Verta Health, for example, um, and direct showing how important these ways to reduce carbohydrate intake and weight loss, these are kind of important. I think with the cardiovascular side of things, I think because it overlaps so much with sort of primary prevention and healthy eating, the significance of it as a kind of a, a specialist area seems to have kind of paled into significance really because it's almost like, well, it's primary prevention. It's every everybody should do that. And that's really unfortunate for the dietitians who specialize in cardiovascular disease is that we've sort of said, well, it's kind of not really speciality when of course it actually is because it's very, very different um, to other areas. And you have, like you mentioned, comorbidities, type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, liver disease, kidney disease, everything on top of a heart attack. So it's a huge amount of knowledge that's needed in those settings. And we really need to get it back on the map as a speciality area. Do you think that sometimes it, due to it being everyone's everyone's concern and everyone's something everyone should support and everyone should advocate a, a heart healthy diet as often, often coined, coined a phrase and everyone should advocate it. Do you think that often sort of because it's primary prevention, it sort of separates it from speciality and it gives that sort of... I think I think definitely. And I think that's where it's important to differentiate between sort of primary and secondary prevention. So everybody should be comfortable in doing the primary prevention. But that in many ways is the most challenging area because there's lots of guidelines for secondary prevention. There's lots of guidelines for treating various illnesses. But there's very little or the most controversial evidence, I think, is for keeping people healthy. If you look at discussions around the Eat Well Guide, percentages, contributions, that divides populations. Even dietitians. Even dietitians. Exactly. <laughs> Even dietitians. Depending on the speciality, they have a different perspective on exactly. that on that guide, so that where makes- different sections should be, what kind of impression it gives to people. Yeah. So I think the hardest part really is the primary prevention. The secondary prevention is really, really difficult. And I know there are dietitians who work in that area, but given the changes in sort of population demographics, obesity prevalence, type 2 diabetes. These are obviously huge risk factors for heart disease. In the future, there's going to be an increased demand on rehab services and we haven't got the people there who are able to support dietary changes. And it's rehab is really unfortunate because 
it suffers in many ways from its own success. So rehab makes a massive difference when it comes to improving cardiac function. If you've had a heart attack, then actually doing a bit of exercise, aerobic exercise, resistance training, gets that cardiac function back. But the reason people had a heart attack in the first place, it's not because of lack of exercise, it's because of these lifestyle habits. And in many ways, the rehab system or the format doesn't really give enough time to rehabilitating or addressing these lifestyle components. And this is where dietitians need to be more vocal and say, look, this is what we can do and shout about the benefits of having more dietitians in this setting. I know there's obviously lots of issues in terms of funding and service provision, but they really make a difference or if not actually giving the advice, but informing what advice is actually given and sort of creating some genuine evidence-based recommendations that the physios or the nurses can actually pick up and use with the patients. It, it needs to happen. So primary prevention-wise, yeah, because everybody is has a heart, um, there's a huge scope for controversy around there, and I think that's what makes it a bit difficult. But secondary prevention, um, I'm not quite sure why that's become lost, whether or not because it's something that doesn't get a look in in terms of cardiac rehab or the diet side of things just sort of gets glossed over. I don't know, but it needs to be put back on the map because otherwise we're going to be in a horrendous situation with the, what's going to happen in five or so years when the number of people with heart disease starts to increase. So from, from where you sit right now, obviously you've sort of painted a picture where dietitians have almost say, taken a, a back seat, a step back, or whether they're there's been a sort of pushback or whatever's happened. Where do you see the lay of the land at the moment? What's actually happening out there on the ground? Because you probably know that better than me, to be honest. I think the issue is dietitians not necessarily wanting to have taken a step back. Um, I'm not saying people have taken the foot off the gas with this. I think what's happened is with the restructuring of the NHS and managers who will listen to this will understand this, that when you've had, um, you know, you've lost dietitians, you've lost band fives, band sixes, and you are needing people to cover inpatient settings you've got to pull people away from these group education talks like the car that rehab might be and it's it's simply a case of i think the priorities have been shifted and not necessarily through choice these have been forced to change the way hospital dietetics is delivered that is a real shame because it creates these services which aren't staffed properly and I'm, I'm pretty certain if you asked any cardiac rehab department, would you like some more dietetic input? Everyone would say yes. But the issue is that there aren't necessarily the staff members and the dietetics team able to do that because they're covering other posts that have not been filled or not being replaced. And it all ultimately comes back to money, basically, in service provision. And that's the real shame is that people will lose out because of this. It's not through dietitians not wanting to get involved. I think it's just the fact that the structure and the positions haven't been advertised anymore because they've been prioritized elsewhere and it can it can often i think it can often feel like for dietitians because it feels very much out of our control the money aspect yeah. we almost feel like oh, okay the money's not there guess that's not a position that i should be interested in or i should go for or i should sort of work to try and improve what can if someone is interested in this area or is passionate about sort of cardiovascular health and and things like that what can they do well we've we've set up um with my position on the bacpr council we've created this diet working group and there's about 10 of us maybe a bit more um from a various various parts of the uk who are involved in creating some sort of evidence-based guidelines to be used one of which was published earlier this week in heart which is really nice um 
I've always kind of put out calls for people to get involved, even if it's just kind of contributing to writing the evidence, but just to kind of get your name out there and say, look, I'm a dietitian working in this area. There have been a few jobs I've seen um, specifically for cardiac uh, rehab or cardiovascular disease. These have been band six posts. One of them advertised quite locally, which is really nice to see. But it's it's no good just having a few here and there. We need more. Um, and it's, it's, it's like justifying costs, basically. How were they able to do that and other services couldn't? That's- I have I have no idea. It, I think it must depend on the, the business case yeah. that's put forward and whether or not people see it as a genuine need. I would argue that um, simply going into cardiac rehab settings and doing a generic healthy eating talk, which I know a lot of dietitians will do because of time commitments and pressure, that's better than nothing but it's not as good as it should be. And I think it's kind of having that conversation saying, well, hang on a second, we really need to improve what we do here. But then having the support from um, physios, from consultants to say, look, yeah, we want more dietetic input into these services. It's, it's unfortunate that, you know, dietitians, we don't hold the purse strings. We can't really regulate how much money we can spend on things. It's people higher up. Uh, and it's persuading those people, making a business case, saying we need more dietitians in this area. Uh, that's how it, things will change. So it comes back to business cases, I think, and uh, people realizing what dietitians can actually do as part of the MDT team. I think dietitians are... They don't, they don't shout enough about what they do. I mean, my position in sort of academia is very different to somebody who's working in the NHS. But it's, I think it's really important that everybody says everything that they're doing because it's, you know, people feel really awkward about saying how good they are and what they're doing because it just seems a bit of a weird thing to do. And I remember, I don't like talking about all the good things that I do because you just think, well, actions should speak louder than words. But actions don't sell things when it comes to commissioning groups or getting bits of money to help out but words do and I think we need to be um, more vocal about all the benefits that we bring to patient care to the MDT to everything like that that's the only way people are going to listen that might change some of the public perception around what dietetics is which is a separate issue in terms of maybe getting people into the profession in the first place and and one thing that reminds me of one thing a dietetic manager actually said to me she said every single thing you write to another healthcare professional you are almost showing you're representing Mm. dietetics yeah you may think what you just said is shouting about our profession is just on twitter but it can be in a letter to a gp exactly make sure that is obviously shows that you did a comprehensive assessment what your uh, treatment path is and make sure he understands that you know what you're talking about you're not just churning out cookie cutters but it's, it's, you're right, and that, and that's a really good point. But And I've got an example for when I was doing my dietetics training is that I did some summer experience, and I won't name the hospital where this was, but there was a call that came in from the local medical school, which is based at the university, mm-hmm. and they were asking for a dietitian to come in and do a three-hour session about nutrition and cancer and the importance of managing um, sort of dry mouth, appetite changes, weight loss, that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. which is, as we know, is really important when it comes to oh, cancer yeah, treatment. Definitely. And I was there doing some sort of uh, shadowing with them over the summer. And the amount of hassle that this created, I was sat there thinking, why can't someone just go and do this three-hour talk 
and show the medics who are on that program and also the medics who are involved in delivering the program what dietitians can do. And it's like you said, it's not just social media, it's not the letters, it's actually going and doing things to show what you can do. And the thing that I think is really good now is that the medical profession is waking up to the importance of nutrition. Granted, there are some issues with how this is kind of delivered on social media, but the hard, you know, the cold, hard reality is that lots of surgical interventions and medicines don't work if somebody is losing weight and ultimately dies. You know, statins don't work if somebody has dropped down dead because of, you know, lack of or lack of food intake. So we have to get the food sorted and the best people to do that are dietitians. And sometimes we've got to go and tell people how good we are. That means taking to social media, that means writing letters, but also means getting involved with actually education programs. <laughs> And showing what you as a dietitian can do. And I remember thinking, like, I'm not even qualified, but I'll go and do this. Um, and it's it's the stuff I've done as well, you know, when when I've gone across to Hull where and done talks at the local cardiac support group, which unfortunately now is closed due to lack of funding. They have all, always said that they struggle to get dietitians from the local area to go and do a talk at seven to eight in the evening. And you think to yourself, how is it that I'm prepared to go? cross the Pennines and do a talk as opposed to somebody who's in that area who won't be doing any clinical stuff at seven in the evening, but actually might make a difference and raise the profile of what dietitians do. And that I think is what we need to do as a profession is just go a little bit further. That might be controversial uh, mm -hmm. and that might be hard for some people to hear, but at the moment there are lots of people snapping at the heels of dietitians um, and we need to kind of, as a profession, unite and tell everybody what we can do. That means doing a little bit more, I think, than what we've historically already done and then shouting about the benefits of why we're doing it. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. <laughs> couldn't agree more. I definitely think that it is, a, it is a case of we need to work on sort of, I think, different people are suited to different areas. Mm, some people yes. feel it more comfortable to do social media. Yeah, However, some people find it more comfortable to um, do talks. Some yeah. people find it more comfortable to support on a more sort of informal level. And I think even with that kind of thing, a dietitian might think, oh, I'm not I'm not a great public speaker or whatever. And I always think, well, the, the talk can be whatever you want it to be. Yes. You can literally say, I think it would be great if we had a discussion. I think it'd be great if we had something different. It doesn't have to be like you sit up, stand up there in front of a PowerPoint and present yes. these kind of things. And I think reaching out to where people are. That's part of the benefit of social media, I think. You you go where they are. Yeah. You don't create your own little website and try to direct people there. Um, we sometimes do that from social media, but the whole point of it is to go where people are. Mm. And I think that is a value of going to a group that's already been set up and not just say, oh, we have to create our own group. We have to do our own things. Actually almost going where people are, where people are interested and let them shout about you as well. Yeah, exactly. So... Obviously, anyone, um, I don't know when people will be listening to this when I uh, get finished with editing it, but you recently published, uh, uh, I don't know if I want me to read it, whether I butcher it, you recently published an article. <laughs> maybe you can maybe you can introduce it because it has a possibly a little bit of background and a little bit of um, sort of set the scene for us yeah. all. So um, earlier this week, we had uh, a paper published in Heart, which was titled uh, Optimum Nutritional Strategies for Cardiovascular Disease Prevention and Rehabilitation as part of the BACPR. And this really came on, this really came on the um, 
back of a conversation that was had at one of the BACPR conferences a couple of years ago about there being all this conflicting nutritional information for primary and secondary prevention of CVD. And uh, for some reason, the BACPR didn't really have anything um, when it comes to what they think should be the appropriate diet from a kind of primary and second point of view. And at the time, um, a chap called Scott Murray, who's a cardiologist, was in charge of BACPR, who's the president, and sort of really was kind of key in, in championing this and driving it forward. Uh, and I joined uh, and led it, and we've got a few other dietitians from across the UK, say a few, quite a lot of dietitians involved across the UK involved in this. And basically it is our professional opinion and views and it's not a systematic view um it's a kind of an editorial not an editorial sorry but a position statement from us on what we think is appropriate from a cardiovascular prevention point of view it includes kind of the usual suspects so macronutrients but we've been very keen to focus on diet patterns as well but also um reflecting the changing landscape of dietary information and also considering things like low carb approaches alongside the traditional mediterranean or cardioprotective diet so it's, it's quite a big document there's a lot of tables in there it's, um, it's definitely a weekend's read if people want to write off some time yeah there's even pictures and there's some pictures yes we've got the old powerpoint to draw some pictures out just but these are th- these are things that kind of hopefully distill the information down and make it a little bit easier to understand because anybody who has read anything around this area knows it is a minefield when it comes to cardiovascular health especially if you focus on macronutrients you ignore you ignore where they come from um if you then try and look at food-based recommendations which is sort of what we've tried to cover in addressing some of the controversial topics um one of the things we were keen to do was actually ask bacpr members who were involved in cardiac rehab what they have been asked as part of the rehab process. So what questions have you had from patients that are a bit strange? So we've had questions about alcohol, dairy seems to come up a lot, fruits and vegetables, surprisingly, um, and and sort of cardiac, um, cardioprotective diet patterns as a whole. So the, the publication really is orientated towards the questions that came from practitioners. So hopefully it can help its usefulness, which I think is a nice thing. It's not just us writing it, what we think is important. This is sort of informed by people working in that rehab setting, hopefully then making it a little bit more useful to them. Makes it a bit more practical. Makes it a little bit more practical, yes. You've definitely taken, obviously the the article is structured in, it's separated in different macronutrients. Mm. However, you have made a specific focus to focus on foods rather than macronutrients. W- why is that? Well, we kind of have or to... Even, 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 sorry, <laughs> even like subcategories of macronutrients that you don't just focus on saturated fat. Or... Yeah, we, we kind of had to do like a little bit of a, you know, everyone, you know, it wouldn't be a good posi- a position paper <laughs> on diet without including the macronutrient side of things. But... We put that in because one of the things we felt collectively which was missing from a lot of nutritional guidelines around cardiovascular disease is protein. And it's, you know, fat tends to be villainized, especially sort of saturated fat. Uh, Mufas and poofas tend to get off a little bit more uh, lightly with things. Carbohydrates, we've got whole grains, but then there's controversies to what you class as whole grains and fiber. And then nobody really touches on protein. And we sort of put the macronutrient side of things in, but then looked at the kind of the food-based recommendations, kind of acknowledging the fact that people don't just go out to the supermarket and buy macronutrients. We buy whole foods. 
And this is ultimately where if we're going to really make any inroads into improving cardiovascular health and nutrition from a cardiovascular point of view, we've got to have these food-based recommendations. And I know that this is consistent with other guidelines, especially those in diabetes as well, where we have this food-based approach, which sort of acknowledges that we have all these different macronutrients that we consume but they're all wrapped together in these individual foods which we consume on a day-to-day basis so surely our dietary recommendations should be based on foods rather than the macronutrients it just seems to make more sense can you give an example of where a macronutrient focus would fall down whereas a food focus would not fall well we've if you we look at the the whole argument around saturated fats um, it's a really easy one to pick, then that's very, very controversial in terms of saturated fats at the moment. You could argue that we have perhaps gone a little bit too far in terms of the um, recommendations to restrict saturated fat. There's still evidence that it raises LDL, but we know now that with our understanding of LDL and how it functions, that there's additional markers of risk such as APOB, looking at particle number, uh, as well as its effect on HDL as well. But if you then look at you know saturated fat as a whole, and we see this effect on lipids and cardiovascular health, if you then look at dairy, which tends to have either well, consistently a sort of neutral or positive association, dairy, important source of protein as well as calcium, but also some dairy saturated fats, you think, well, if saturated fat on the whole is bad, but dairy is kind of good, then if you come along to rehab and say you've got to eat less saturated fat, but make sure you include some dairy or even olive oil, which can contain mm-hmm. saturated fat, it doesn't make any sense. And you're sort of saying that we should eat less saturated fat, but then have foods that contain saturated fat because they're good. It doesn't make any sense. No. And this is where the food-based recommendations come in. Because if you know in your head, well, look, okay, I need to be mindful of saturated fat, however... I know that there are some key foods that are really beneficial for heart health. So for secondary prevention, you might be saying someone to have plenty of nuts, um, which obviously are high in saturated fats and protein. But if you look through something called the NACR, the National Audit for Cardiac Rehab Mediterranean Diet Sheet, which is based on PREDIMED, four tablespoons of olive oil per day, and that's a lot of fat, which A, is not consistent with the Eat Well Guide, um, but is also a lot of saturated fat as well which you would think is bad, but because it's kind of in that olive oil, it it behaves differently. And it's moving beyond, like you said, focusing on macronutrients and looking at where they're found in foods. So one thing I've I've always, I definitely think focusing on foods is is really important because if you think about, say, saturated fat, it doesn't just come in isolation. It often comes within foods. However, there are, in my own experience, there are certain types of saturated fat that do come in almost isolation. One, butter might be an example. And I've seen that, almost play havoc with different patients um blood levels um, yeah, yeah. cholesterol levels and things like that and i've always found that a benefit of switching that especially if they're cooking in it switching yeah. it to more olive oil approach yeah. um I, I, whereas saturated fat in other foods yes i wouldn't focus on too much i would no. focus on the the butter side of things yeah. would you say that's a yeah and I, I think and then that comes back to understanding what's in foods basically mm. um and, and that just highlights the fact that it's not just it's not okay just to kind of focus on macronutrients but we also you've got to drill down and look at where these things are coming from um i hope people obviously would never go and make macronutrient based recommendations you wouldn't say to a patient go and cut down your saturated fat off you go see you later and give them a list saying eat less saturated fat, there'd be food-based recommendations. So like you say, um, reduce butter, 
um, replace with something like an unsaturated spread or really think do you need to put your unsaturated spread on your bread anyway one of the things I get asked a lot um, is what what should I cook with because there's a big rise in coconut oil now mm-hmm. uh, because it's natural and it's healthy and I always say well yeah arsenic and uranium are natural do you want to go and cook with them so natural is a buzzword but the coconut oil side of things is really interesting because it is a saturated fat and it will raise cholesterol but the idea for it being healthy is because it doesn't burn. It's, it, it doesn't kind of undergo oxidative damage when you heat it up because it has mm-hmm. no double bonds. And this is sort of where you get into the really complicated arguments about smoke point. I know if any food scientists will be listening, there's going to be loads of questions coming in about smoke points and oils, which is great. But some of the evidence, at least, that I've looked at, one of the best oils to cook with actually is olive oil. Um, and ultimately, you end up with if you kind of go by the smoke point, you end up with loads of different types of olive oil, different types of oil, sorry, for cooking. And it's sometimes easy just to get a nonstick pan and use your oils as dressings. And that's what I've kind of said to a lot of people. The best way to really improve your relationship with food and actually think about what you're eating is to change your cooking methods as well. So rather than putting in loads of butter or oil into your pan and frying, cook it in a good nonstick pan and use your oil as a dressing instead it changes what you eat and it changes how you eat. And that kind of ties the whole cooking and food-based recommendations together. Yeah, definitely. I think often um, thinking about how that advice may be implemented, one Mm. thing I've noticed is patients will hear olive oil and go, extra virgin olive oil is the best oil. I should use it for every single cooking task within yes. the kitchen however if you cook your eggs in olive and extra virgin <laughs> olive oil i personally i know people that do i personally think they taste a bit horrible <laughs> and it's better to go for a, a lighter more yeah. mild olive oil that's mm. a little bit sort of and i think those sort of practical things are definitely useful when thinking about patients implementation yeah. and things like yeah that. i mean it's the same argument can be said about um dare i say it, processed food which is very topical at the moment, especially kind of following sort of egg sandwich gate, which went around Twitter recently. Mm-hmm. Um, I think anybody listening to this is kind of going to realize that, you know, having an egg sandwich post-surgery is not going to kill anybody. It's quite the opposite. It might be quite useful with a bit of protein mm-hmm. and carbohydrate. So the, the interesting thing when it comes to um, processed foods is what we understand by them. And again, knowing patients knowing clients knowing people not everybody has the opportunity to use fresh fruits and vegetables in those situations what would be wrong with using frozen peas or carrots or broccoli or tinned peas if you're in a kind of you know you've had a heart attack the strain of that has put a massive um driven a wedge between you and your partner you're going through a divorce the house you're living in a one-bedroom flat with no cooking facilities it's a bit rich for me to come along and say, make sure you have your organic salmon and lovely fresh fruits and vegetables if you've got nowhere to cook it. And I think we've got to be very, very careful about giving advice which is appropriate and not influenced by what's going on in the media at the moment. Processed foods, ultra-processed foods, I see a lot of and get asked about so much by people when I've done sort of group education talks. And it's really worrying because you've got people who don't necessarily have a lot of money to spend on food, but they are almost being told in many ways through very persuasive arguments to go and spend loads of money on these fresh fruits and vegetables, which if you buy a lot of them and don't know how to cook them, will spoil, you'll throw them away. And there's nothing wrong with tinned sardines and tinned salmon. What's What's wrong with that? It's processed, it's in a can. But so what? 
Um, and it comes back to what you said about these kind of practical suggestions of how to implement this cardioprotective diet. You have to know the people you're talking with. And I think as well, that really kind of showcases what dietitians are all about, which is really giving appropriate patient-specific advice. And I, I, this kind of phrase of ultra-processed, processed food, it just winds me up because it gets it's, it's used to scaremonger at the moment without any real consideration, I think, of what it actually means. And I think a common phrase that I say quite a lot, but you hear lots of dietitians say quite a lot when someone asks you a question, a family, a family friend, or usually someone who's related to, not related to you, but related to a friend in some way. And they, they hear you're a dietitian, they go, what about this? Yeah. And your answer is often starts off with the phrase, well, <laughs> it depends on... X, Y, and Z, and all these <laughs> confounding factors, which we don't really know. Yeah. And we end up just... Everything in moderation. <laughs> we end up uh, just going down sort of context, but I think mm. it is really important to understand context. And I think yes. that's why certain conversations require the element of nuance mm. to them and, and understanding the context of post-surgery. And yeah. that's why a lot of people who don't maybe experience that from a, mm. um, a dietary, dietary side may think, oh, that's, that's not yeah. the best choice. White yeah. bread is more processed and... Yeah because of the understanding of the whole context of the diet and the context of people's lives and the, the things that are going on, you can make tailored recommendations. I think we could get very easily segued into conversations around sort of the appropriateness of um, hospital food. And I think one of the things I've seen, especially on Twitter, is that we get the kind of food-based recommendations for people who are healthy and visiting mixed up with the people who are in hospital who are acutely sick mm -hmm. and unwell. And there's a lot of people in hospital who maybe struggle to eat and don't necessarily fancy something off the hospital menu, but might just fancy something from the shop downstairs. Now, if that helps them recover from their illness, gets them up out of bed away from hospital, that to me is a win. And then you can really kind of put the lifestyle change in place. But it's about priorities and it's about understanding what the focus should be at that point in time. And I think going back to cardiac rehab, we were talking about food-based recommendations, um, making suggestions, advice, you know, thinking about processed food, whether or not it's useful for some people or others. There needs to be time to do that in rehab and the current format doesn't allow it. So we have to change, I think, the structure and change the focus as we are going through cardiac rehab to build more scope, to have these quite often long conversations with people, uh, with patients and, and the family members who are involved in their care as well. So from your perspective, what's the current format? You said that it doesn't allow us in the current format. What's no, the so, current format so of like a, a cardiac rehab service? If a, if a trust trying to implement it, how do you, obviously everyone's different, yeah. every service is different, but what's some, some common things so, that you so would like see? like you said, every service is different. So we have trusts that have, you know, long programs, some have shorter ones, some do group sessions, which is great. Some trusts have the ability to refer people to a dietitian, which is fantastic to see. But then we've got to think, well, okay, how long might that be? What's the waiting time? But the fact that you, we can do that is, is great, mm -hmm. but not everywhere has that based on resources. So the standard thing is a group education session, which is fine, but then that needs to be followed up with additional things that are specific to those patients given that the majority of people in that rehab setting will not only have had some sort of cardiac event but will most likely have issues around glucose control as well they're complicated um, and we need that ability to discuss so 
what what I envisage would be a great service. Um, we would have dedicated cardiovascular dietitians who would be able to take referrals from the physios, from the occupational therapists who are seeing the people on a regular basis and would be able to have one-to-one consultations at a very quick turnaround, just in the same way that the hospital dietitians who work in the, let's say, the ward settings, the acute settings, are able to see individuals during that uh, their day. We should have the same ability during cardiac rehab as well, because it makes a difference that if you can give people that advice there and then, they can go and implement it as soon as they leave rehab at the end of the day. And it's that regular contact which helps sustain lifestyle changes and it goes back to what i said at the beginning people in rehab have had a heart attack because of chronic exposure to smoking uh, poor dietary choices and i say poor dietary choices that's not really fair um dietary choices that they've made during the course of their life so far and yet we have a couple of group education sessions to try and fix that it's not going to work is it Mm -hmm. so we need to build more focus into addressing the lifestyle side of things now that might be in rehab when they're in the hospital setting coming back to do the exercise or it might be in the sort of phase four community style cardiac rehab that people are encouraged to go to once they've been discharged and these kind of are like the settings where i think we could really make inroads in terms of have that regular nutritional input to keep people going along because dietary change is hard it's a bit like trying to lose weight it's it's hard it's difficult and you need that support. And the one thing that rehab is really good at is creating that group support. It's a group of people who share the same common medical conditions. There's that network of support that's already there. We've got to tap into that and we've got to use it. So obviously it'd be different in different locations, yes. but would you have it like a clinic or would you take people out or would you say, can I see you after Can I see you after class? Or? I, I, honestly, <laughs> I honestly don't know. We need to have some thought about how we could yeah. do this. But... Um, if there's a dietitian who is able to take referrals in and is able to see people quickly, that would be great. It might be if people come on a weekly basis for their exercise sessions, that if you've said um, on the previous week, I'd like to speak one-to-one, that you have an appointment the week after. I suspect if that was the case, that dietitian would be very, very busy the week after because mm-hmm. everybody would want to be seen. And it comes back to resources and costs. In an ideal world, We'd all ha- we'd have loads of dietit- dietitians, not just for cardiovascular disease, but for cancer, stroke, everything. But it's not going to happen. So maybe we need to think a little bit more strategically about how we can kind of get more dietitians into these areas. But I think one thing is just trying to make more inroads in, make more links with the actual cardiac rehab team and try and take, if there's options there, take a few referrals just to kind of show that we do exist. Uh, I know some trusts who don't have any dietetic input, which is a real shame. Or it might be a a single talk. And that's difficult to do anything in that single time frame. And how would we measure the success of this? So say we we get a service, we... We mm. someone says, okay, you've got a year. Yeah, show us what you can do then. So, I mean, if you look at one of the really good resources at the moment is the uh, NACR data set, which is published annually, looking at basically loads of different cardiovascular outcomes in rehab. So, weight changes, smoking cessation, lipids, BMI, all these things. It's a bit worrying if you look at BMI, um, which obviously we know there are limitations with using BMI in terms of looking at weight and body composition, etc. But It's not particularly great in terms of rehab on improving BMI. Um, Everyone stops smoking, obviously. Uh, Exercise capacity can even improve. The lipids all improve. 
blood pressure does develop largely driven by the medications that people get put on straight after uh, a cardiac event. So actually, we could use some of those same outcomes in terms of tailing them for being for dietetic outcomes. I suspect there would be greater improvements in weight. Weight circumference would be a really simple one to do. Um, very few places do hand grip strength, and I like hand grip strength because it's a marker of functional status as well. So if we're stronger going through rehab, it means we're probably going to have a better outcome at the end and maybe five years later as well. These again would be simple things to bring into rehab and audit at the end of it. If you can persuade physios who are there to do grip strength initially it's on day one and you've got a dietetic a uh, bit of dietetic input counseling around protein fats carbohydrates food sources that kind of stuff and your grip strength improves at the end of your rehab that's a fantastic outcome basically because your individual your patient has got stronger and strength is kind of a really key thing that isn't necessarily considered and hence why we sort of put, put protein in our guideline because it's very difficult to build muscle without adequate protein and it's that macronutrient which is sort of skimmed over really in favor of fats and carbohydrates we kind of go oh yeah protein's important but that's sort of it really and as we get older there's um recommendations now that we should be kind of consuming slightly more protein per uh, gram per kilogram body weight than we should do when we're at a younger age because we've got that sort of slightly blunted um anabolic response so we should be consuming more protein so we've, we've got to kind of get this information to rehab along with the information about food-based recommendations, but not necessarily being afraid of fats because nuts are high in fat, but they're, inverted commas, good fats. And getting all these things into your 45-minute group education session and then taking questions about people who say, well, I've heard about tinned salmon and tinned sardines and, oh, I heard fructose is inflammatory, should I avoid fruit? It's impossible to deliver this in the current format, which is why we need to really shake things up. Thank you for uh, giving an overview of how you would see the service looking and how it would look on um, a, da a daily basis. But from your point of view, how how do you think, what would be an initial consultation with somebody who's maybe had a cardiac event and is going in, there isn't a cardiac rehab service available or there is, what sort of things would you say would give them the most bang for their book or where would you sort of focus your attention? I think obviously the, the key thing to consider is that initial dietary assessment. That's a, that's a standard point. Um, in addition to uh, anthropometry, the usual things, so height, weight, waist circumference, and like I mentioned before, grip strength as well. Without an adequate cardiac rehab service, it's very, very difficult to make inroads in. We've spoken before about, uh, I say we, the sort of the the ACPR and, and other people around this, should it kind of be a compulsory sort of opt-in uh, or sorry, opt-out where you're automatically enrolled in rehab and then you have to choose to kind of not come. At the moment, you have to opt-in, which is a barrier initially. So we need to change that. Initial consultations, however, diet, dietary assessments, weight, height, some consultation conversations around lipids, blood pressure. You could spend hours talking to somebody about what's been going up to that point setting goals priorities and there's nothing there's nothing really kind of unique there in terms of what you'd perhaps do with somebody who is um who has type 2 diabetes and is looking for advice around glycemic control or weight it's the fact that we don't have that initial time to do that at the moment that's what's missing whereas your services of diabetes you'll be able to get an appointment in theory with one of the specialist dietitians in that area 
not every rehab setting has the ability to refer to a specialist cardiovascular dietitian. And that's when people start to fall through the cracks and there's nothing to catch people underneath because you don't have any other way of getting information other than going to Google and looking for what's online and then you're into the minefield of nutrition. And hopefully they find this this, this article that you've written yes. and they, um, they go, yeah. they go but, through it, but it's not, the article's not written for patients to read no, and, and no. sort of I mean, try to implement it. If you, you, if you basically read this and skip to the sort of the, the sort of the dietary recommendations, the dietary approaches, then there's the sort of the cardioprotective Mediterranean style diet, which pending, you know, if you wanted to be really um, cynical, you could argue, well, the Mediterranean is a region. So is your diet the same in Italy as it is in North Africa, which is still Mediterranean. So you could be that kind of person. Um, if you, if you wished, but if you look at the kind of the foods that it contains, you know, lots and lots of vegetables, pulses, um, lean meats, plenty of oil, nuts, it's an easy way to kind of implement it. You could actually follow that. Um, but there's caveats to it as well. There's things to consider, um, whether or not you need to do that in the context of trying to lose weight as well. So most people who are, you know, going through rehab have that higher BMI. So there's an element of weight loss being involved as well. So it is kind of geared up more towards sort of dietitians and healthcare professionals rather than patients. But certainly kind of thinking about food intake, you could read that and kind of go, do you know what? I probably do need to have more fruits and vegetables. I probably do need to uh, increase my intake of unsaturated fats and nuts, these kind of things. So you could take a few things away from it, but it wouldn't necessarily be the same as sitting down with somebody and having that detailed conversation and making changes that way. There's two questions I, I want to ask probably straight after another, but I'll, I'll say them both now just so I remember them. So I'll, <laughs> I would like to know what uh, you think a primary prevention strategy would be, um, how that would work, or what you envision it would be. And also, you mentioned a little bit about the Eat Well Guide. Mm. What are the main limitations with that? We said we we sort of yeah. said it wasn't a problem, and we acknowledge that a lot of people may use it. Yeah, but we didn't talk about the pitfalls it can mm. have, and apart from maybe saturated fat being bad, therefore discard all things. But what what are some of the major pitfalls with that in in a cardioprotective yeah. sort of... So if we go for the primary prevention question first. Okay. Um, primary prevention, how do we kind of, from what I remember, Christian was Yeah, so how would we, how would that, we how would we implement that? This yeah. is where we need um, GPs to really buy into this. And because actually if someone comes along and their BMI is higher, overweight, obese, they come in for one of the health checks and the, their blood pressures up, their lipids are high. It would be great if there was a dietitian sat in the room next door and the GP could go, oh, by the way, would you be interested in speaking to our dietitian there? There, You can wait half an hour or come along next week. So actually, that would be the first point is basically improving access to dietitians. So primary prevention, fantastic. But that relies on people being picked up in the system. And going back to what I said at the very beginning, the, the thing that I find interesting with cardiovascular disease is the actual signs and symptoms of it. So high blood pressure, um, hyperglycemia, insulin resistance, um, dyslipidemia, they're all clinically silent. So how are you going to get people into that clinical setting to have that conversation initially? You rely on kind of random spot checks. So you can't do that. We've got to do something a bit more drastic. And this is where I think as a society, we need to really look at what we are doing at the moment. So 
the sugar tax is one interesting thing, which I know will divide people in terms of what this will and mm -hmm. will not do. The foods that are involved. We've had inroads, I think, to availability of energy drinks to young children, which is fantastic um, in terms of restricting their sales. But there are still things around um, food labeling, um, food availability, looking at takeaways and if you look if you map up where there are higher prevalences of obesity and cardiovascular disease it correlates with where the most takeaways fast food outlets various celebrity chefs have tried to improve school meals but then we've had parents passing food through the actual fence so th these are kind of all very simple things to in, on paper to fix increasing population intakes of fruits and vegetables oily fish exercise these are all things we already know what to do the problem is we're not doing it. And that's where I think the issue is bigger than just dietitians. It's healthcare professionals, it's government, it's society as a whole. Do we go down the route of product reformulation? Would that make a difference? Would selling products in smaller portions make a difference? Classic example being breakfast cereal. Most people will pour out way more cereal than they need will pour out way more than the recommended portion size and the portion on the front of the box is likely bigger than what the recommended serving size is. Uh, I remember when I was a child, I had those little multi-pack boxes and that was a portion. And that's you didn't have four, I had one. So do we need to go down that route to basically think about food portion size because we are all quite bad at guessing accurate portion sizes? And... You kind of have to think, well, where do we draw the line between the government meddling so much in what we as individuals pick? Where would we be happy in terms of having somebody say, well, you can't have this much. So you can't have this much chocolate. You can't have this much orange juice or fizzy drink because it's linked to X, Y and Z. I, I don't know the answer to that, but something needs to be done because we've gone so far down this and we're not really making any substantial improvements uh, and we are becoming... It's quite sad to say I think sicker despite all the lovely food that we have available now the seasonality aspect is sort of gone we've got things all year round but yet we're still struggling to meet this five a day recommendation we're still struggling to get oily fish but it's more available than it ever was so something really has broken and I don't quite have an answer for that is it education everybody seems to think it is you ask people what would fix it oh education would be the answer but i don't necessarily think it would be i think people are aware of these things that are you know quote good and bad for us but the issue is why we aren't actioning and listening to ourselves with this and why people are finding it difficult i don't i don't know the answer to that so primary prevention is going to be really really hard so um I mean, yeah, dietitians in primary prevention, fantastic, but it still relies on somebody to come along and be picked up by the system unless you want to get involved with uh, food companies and government in terms of regulating, then yeah, you can have a huge impact as a dietitian on that. So you think it's more of a structural impact? You do more good mm. as a structural changes to people's regular eating habits than you would do? I think so. Um, it's it's really difficult because it's it's that that conflict again isn't in terms of do you work with the food industry or you do you perhaps lobby against them well my, but, but but this is the kind of thing because you could argue that if you were to work with a food company and look at reformulating products and doing it that way you could probably exert quite a lot of change 
with, let's say, reducing the salt content of a cereal, for example, and I think how many millions of people will uh, nationally eat cereal, you could have quite a powerful effect that way and affect more people than perhaps if you were to see people on an individual basis every day. So I think that might be one element, but the other, it's not, it's not just a single thing that can be targeted here because we've got so kind of wrapped up in food and politics and its effect on our health. We've kind of got to take, take a step back and go, right, we need to change X, we need to change Y, we need to change Z. But there are so many things we've got to focus on. And, and I think some of the policies are going to have to be quite drastic because I just think otherwise they're not going to work. And we keep saying all these things about increasing fruits and vegetables and looking at the sugar tax as a way of reducing our sugar consumption. You look through the recent NDNS, it's not really made a huge impact in terms of sugar intake as a population um, level. And we know about free sugars and the target since 2015 in terms of the SACAN report, but we're still kind of around about 11-ish percent of energy in adults. So why is that? With all of the lobbying, with all of the information about sugar, we are still over-consuming it. That tells mm -hmm. me people are either not listening or the interventions, the proposals and the plans put in place to reduce sugar intake aren't tough enough. And you said it work against the food industry. Now, mm. my conversations with people who um, have friends that sort of work around a, with a nutrition degree, you do, you do meet some people. Yes. And they, they decide to go sort of around the food industry. Yeah, or, of course. And my conversation with them is actually, they actually are pro-regulation. Yeah. They think yeah. it's one, they, they want it because, this is the reason, because it would force everyone to have a level playing mm. field. Yes, So course. they want to make their products healthier, but they know by reducing the fat, salt, and sugar in them, people will pick them off the shelves, put them in the bowl and go, actually, don't like you know it. what? Exactly. I don't like it as much yeah. as this other one, so we're just going to stop buying them. Yeah, and it's, 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 it's a classic example, like you said, that nobody wants to change things first, because if you cut back on the fat and the salt and the sugar, then yeah, your product will taste different. And if it tastes different to a competitor brand, people will move to that. And then you think, well, why have we done this? We've lost money. So it, I, I completely agree that actually having this level playing field and having more strict regulations would be a way forward. And it's actually nice to hear people say that actually we would welcome this from within the industry. I think the view is that, well, they don't want regulations because it allows them to sell products. But actually... Well, the, the people I know are not the shareholders and no, the people who work for the company. So <laughs> yeah. maybe the shareholders have different opinions, but it's um, profit driven. And what I find really in many ways interesting that people think that food industry and food companies are bothered about people's health. It's profit driven. And like you said, the shareholders, an example, you might be a nutritionist or dietitian working for a food company and you might want better legislation to regulate what goes in. We all know about, you know, the effects of salt and blood pressure, for example, but if that means that the product that you as a nutritionist or dietitian have helped reformulate doesn't taste as good, then the, in, the shareholders of that company will be saying, well, we're making less money on this now, so we're going to pull it because what we had before was better. And it comes back to profit and costs. And there, there needs to be some very tough discussions from the government side of things in terms of what they want to focus on. I think personally, there is still a little bit of a conflicting message between what the government says when it comes to population health and what they're actually doing. So if we are really keen to make inroads when it comes to our free sugar intake and reductions, then why do we not just ban full sugar drinks? 
we've we've kind of pushed the sugar target to reduce them and reformulate them. The sugar, Why not just ban them? Sugar tax five percent, wasn't it? It wasn't a it yeah yeah, I'm and it pretty was sure. A, and you could argue that actually what will happen is you'll just push people to other products that are cheaper but contain more sugar. So it's 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 sort of like baby steps really that, and we can kind of getting baby kind of sized outcomes. If the government was really keen to do something for our health, then there'd be a little bit, I think, a stronger message. Primary prevention, I think, was the first question. Was confusing. And then the Eat Well Guide was the second one. So my, I mean, the Eat Well Guide, it has its place and it's useful to help people know what foods are common to the food groups. And I've done talks before where people think potatoes are a vegetable and therefore count as one of your five a day. So if you've got a big plate of mash, you're having three of your five a day, which you'll laugh, but... That's the kind of the level of information that sometimes people get confused on. My grievance with the Eat Well Guide is that I think it's a little bit confused in terms of what it's trying to say, because I look at it and think, is this based on calories or is it based on the health effects of these particular foods? So from a kind of a secondary prevention point of view, from a cardiovascular health, I would rather that the fruits and vegetables aspect be much larger because we both know and everybody listening will know that you get carbohydrates from fruits and vegetables, not just from things like potatoes or cereals or that kind of thing. So I think you're kind of saying, well, okay, why are we saying this much starchy carb? Why not actually have a couple of bananas, which also will contain carbohydrate as well? So it, it seems a bit confusing in terms of the messages. So I would rather have more of the fruits and vegetables, which is more aligned with the kind of the Mediterranean cardioprotective diet, to be honest. Um, and if you look back through the resource, like I mentioned, the NACR med diet tool, which is based on PREDIMED, you're kind of getting into the realms of maybe seven or eight portions per day, which is from the kind of the PREDIMED, which is obviously different to the five per day. Now, if you look through our sort of recent paper, there is some conflicting evidence around how many portions, what the optimal amounts are for cardiovascular prevention. But if you look at diet patterns, cardiovascular disease, fruits and vegetables, kind of a big component. And you could even do this if you're following a low-carb diet. There's plenty of non-starchy uh, vegetables that you can really add in, which might be useful from a glycemic control point of view. And that's something we've put in our paper as well. But then you look at other components and dairy has kind of been hammered down as well since the eat well plate. So that's a smaller percentage on the plate now than it was on the eat well plate. Uh, so the eat well guide is a smaller percentage now than the eat well plates. And you kind of think, well, why is that? Is it based on the fat content? Is it based on the calorie content? What is it? It doesn't necessarily seem to relate to the health benefits of dairy or the health effects of dairy, which we've seen in the literature. And then you have a little thin sliver of oils and spreads which you think, well, okay, I'm doing a cardiac rehab talk. I'm going to stand up and say to people, make sure you have plenty of olive oil in your diet, at least four tablespoons per day, cook with it, have plenty of um, oils and salads and stuff like that. And then you've got a tiny, tiny sliver on the plate. So is it calories or is it health? If it's health, then that's quite wrong because olive oil is a really key component of the cardioprotective diet rich in unsaturated fats and if you go for the extra virgin olive oil then there's small amounts of those phenolic compounds which maybe have some slight health benefit and this is kind of where the plate i find falls down is because it doesn't tell you about the health benefits of these foods it doesn't give you portion sizes um and it can be interpreted as having every meal needs to look like this which we all kind of know is wrong but 
when you have people saying, do I have to have this at every meal? You think, no, you don't have to have your vegetables for breakfast. And you, it just, it's, it's a starting point to have a discussion around what foods are and where things fit in. But it's not something that we should just be relying on. We've got to build on that. And there are better tools that are more appropriate to that cardiac population. And I, th- I think we've just got to be very honest with ourselves and say, do you know what? We can actually do better than this, which is hard to hear because that sort of often or not that cardiac rehab, cardiac rehab talk is kind of treated as a sort of rotational post through which really devalues those individuals who've specialized in cardiovascular disease. We can do better and we should do better. And there's information out there which we should be using. It just requires a bit of time to sit down and go, right, I'm going to build on this and I'm going to make it more specific and it will benefit patients because we, we they deserve to have a bit better than what we currently do, I think, and we can do better and we should do better. Because it affects so many people. Because it affects so many people. The biggest controversy is what we do for primary prevention, which is where we have all the conversations about carbohydrates. Do we need, how much do we need low carb versus low fat? But from a kind of a secondary prevention point of view, we can do better than the Eat Well Guide. Like I mentioned, so many people with, you know, altered glucose control, either pre-diabetic, diabetic, or sort of getting into those categories. The Eat Well Guide, it's 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 just not appropriate for basing things. And we've got to move past that. And there's evidence that shows, you know, DASH diets, Mediterranean style, even well-designed, I say well-designed, low-carb diets may actually be beneficial and and the sort of the uh, diabetes recommendations really have led the way on this in terms of embracing the new evidence we've got to do that with cardiovascular disease as well yeah and i think with the topic of low carb diets mm. we as dietitians are in a brilliant place to ensure that patients do it in the best way exactly possible. and this goes back to what i said about the structure of cardiac rehab if you have people making dietary changes because of things they've read on the news or the paper or whatever media or whatever where are you going to fit in the time to actually help people make these proper suggestions? Because someone might go low carb, right? I'm going to have my bacon and black pudding every day and my cheap sausages from the supermarket. It's low carb, but it's very different to having a low carb diet that maybe is rich in uh, salmon, mackerel, sardines, um, courgettes, kale, cauliflower, low carb vegetables. They're both low carb but one is infinitely better than the other. And you need to have that time to make inroads with patients. At the moment, the setting in rehab doesn't allow that. And that's what needs to change. And we've got to push for that as dietitians because that's what we will do. What is it? What do you think that people can like, <clears throat> I'll rephrase that. So what from this, from this podcast, when people have listened to this, they go, yeah, you know what? This is something I really want to change or do better. What what can people do, whether they're dietitians or student dietitians? What can they do right now today? So what I'd really like to do, one of the things that we are pushing for the BACPR group is to actually lobby and push for more dietitians in this area. So there's a, there's a small numbers in the BACPR mm-hmm. who are dietitians. There isn't a specialist group within the BDA or cardiovascular disease. So mm-hmm. we've kind of found a home there. If people are interested in this area, and I hope people really are because it affects everybody, then it will be great if people can join and there's opportunity, join the BACPR because there's opportunities to help involve, get involved in writing the guidelines. Um, We'll be hosting nutrition conferences soon. So there's loads of opportunities to get involved in that way. Um, Other than that, 
It would be great if people can speak to their team leads about getting involved in cardiac rehab. And it might be that you have to go out of your way a little bit to make some inroads. But once you're there, you are the person who delivers these group education talks. And if you kind of start pushing a little bit, maybe the people who work in rehab will start referring to you kind of making more use of your time and improving the service that way. But I think a lot really starts with us as dietitians and kind of going out there and saying, look, I really want to help contribute to the cardiac rehab service. At the moment, we do one group education talk. Can we increase the frequency of that? It might not be doing individual appointments with patients. It might just be doing more frequent group education talks. That's better than just doing one. And it's it's about consistency and frequency. So getting involved with the BACPR, um, get involved with the diet working group, contribute to some of the evidence base, and then what we, you know, take on board what we've sort of writing and implement it. We've created these recommendations. We're probably going to create a set of slides that talk about how you implement it. Mm-hmm. It'd be great if when this comes out, people actually do implement it and change what we do because it will make a difference to patients. And ultimately, that's what all dietitians want to do. They want to help people make better choices. And this is where we have to kind of sometimes go, do you know what? I think we can update things and I think we can probably do things a bit better. And that is a very hard conversation to have with yourself if you sort of go, yeah, maybe we do need to change this. So I think a lot of it starts and finishes with the individual dietitians. Yeah. And it's probably, it's probably easier to have that approach consistently rather than at one point, because sometimes it can be hard to have the, the sort of, um, recollection that you maybe not have been doing yeah. the best yeah. that is possible. And, and this is the hard and this is the difficult thing is because with services that have been stripped away and it, it is horrible when you know you've got you know you haven't had a post replaced or you've lost or people have been rebanded or whatever. It, it's really hard to deal with. But ultimately that's I personally that's not an excuse for doing things that aren't right. And that's I think what we have to remember is that if we as a profession I'm going to stand up and say we are the people who deliver evidence-based nutrition advice. We've got to be sure that what we're delivering is actually evidence-based. And that, I think, is a kind of a really poignant thing to remember because is the Eat Well Guide evidence-based for cardiac rehab? There's better evidence to use. And it just means a little bit of updating, which is fine because that's what we should all be doing anyway in terms of continuous professional development. It's what we encourage our students uh, to do. And it's what we expect them to kind of get involved in as they graduate. That continuous development is part of the HCPC. Um, So as as kind of people who are graduated and working in this area, we've got to make sure we lead by example and we expect our students to follow the evidence base. So we kind of also have to do it ourselves. And I think otherwise you can't call people out for not practicing evidence base if what you're doing is not current. So in conclusion, are there anything anything that people should read or um, have a look at in this area? I'll link to the article that's been referred throughout that you've been working on for probably quite a while. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I'll link to that. Everyone must read it. Um, <laughs> I think, no, in terms of key resources, there's, there's so much information out there when it comes to cardiovascular health that actually makes it really, really difficult to understand and, and get people's heads around. There's nothing really set in stone. There's obviously clinical guidelines from NICE. There's some really, uh, a couple of good documents uh, that have been published, one from JBS, Joint British Societies, which often is you know overlooked when it comes to cardiovascular health, but has some really nice recommendations about foods uh, and sort of whole foods and sort of snacks as well 
Um, other than that, it's kind of the clinical evidence and the studies. And I think really embracing new information. My, we all have our sort of cognitive biases and things that we like. And sometimes when the study comes out, we think, oh, well, this is really low carb. It's not very good. Maybe, maybe it might be useful. Maybe it might be interesting to try for certain types of people. And I think just being open to new approaches with people and patients will make a difference. Everybody is different. We know this. People eat different foods. So really the dietary advice that we give should be reflective of people's preferences and choices and other medical conditions. And I think that's where we've perhaps gone a little bit wrong with cardiovascular disease. We've been a bit too rigid in our approach. And if we follow example from diabetes now, we've got lots of different approaches to manage diabetes. There's low carb diets used by low carb GP. Um, there is sort of the direct approach, which is the sort of the meal replacements. They are all effective. They all work but they work for the right types of patients and people. And I think that's what we've got to do with cardiovascular disease. We've got to look at tailoring these diets and the foods to the specific populations, specific people. That comes from looking at the literature and reading uh, and making those clinical judgments. Thanks for joining me this week on Dietetics Digest. Make sure to visit my website at dietheticsdigest.com where you can listen to the podcast. Or why not consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Smart Radio, Spotify, or basically just ask Alexa and you'll never miss a show. And while you're at it, if you found this show valuable, you could do one of two things. Firstly, if you could leave a review on the podcast app you're listening to, maybe it be Apple Podcasts or Stitcher Smart Radio. And if you could tell a friend about the podcast, that'll be really helpful to help grow the podcast more. Thank you so much for your support and have a lovely weekday wherever you are.